We'll be going through this uh, person of Jesus study, okay? Unit one, all right? Okay, this is what it looks like. Okay, well, let's pray together, and then we'll look into the text this morning. Father, it truly is a joy not only to begin our morning together with singing the songs that we just did as they just so wonderfully portray the truth of a sinner's soul that has been saved. And Lord, we can identify with that. So thank you for giving Brother Hamp that message this morning and Missy and the others. And Lord, thank you for this time of dedication. It is so encouraging to see a young couple want their children to walk up, to grow up and walk in the ways of the Lord. And then also just as encouraging to be a part of a church that takes it as serious. Uh, Lord, we look into our culture now and we realize that the culture is greatly um, moving away from the truths of your word. And so, uh, again, we, we pray for our culture. We pray for Tim and Kelly. Uh, we pray that you would use us as a church family to not only help them grow up Brooklyn to know you, but also the community around us. And now, Lord, we pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts that we might hear you speak to us, help clarify things that we don't understand, uh, help us to see more fully into who you are and what you've come to do. And now, Lord, the, the recognition for those that do not know truth and do not understand what you've come to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so stand with me, if you will, as we read Matthew chapter 9. We're in verses 9 through 13 this morning, okay? Chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, and of course that would be from more than likely Peter's home as he has just healed the paralytic. You remember that from last week. As he went on from there, he saw a man calling, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. You may be seated. Powerful words from the Lord. Again, uh, I was mentioning this to the early services that I hate to sound like a broken record, but this really is the message of the Bible. This is a profound truth that the Lord is, is telling us here. And so I hope that you'll listen carefully as we go through some of these thoughts. But let me just start my, my thoughts with this as I was thinking through this particular section this this week, and that is, is that many people have had lots of ideas about who Jesus is. Talk to anybody, and they'll give you some kind of definition. My dad jokingly used to say, if you want to know what a Jew believes, who, which he was raised Jewish, he would say, if you had 12 different Jewish people in a room, you'd get 13 different answers. And so there's a lot of discrepancy on what people believe about God, and Jesus is no less uh, any different than that. And so you know yourself, some people think of him as a great prophet, a great teacher. Uh, some would look at him as being a great humanitarian, did much for the culture, and wouldn't dismiss any of those things. Others, not fully sure about who Jesus is. A lot of times they just ignore him in their lives and live their life on their own. Still hoping, however, to find some means of eternal life 
some peace in eternity because we're all going to die, right? There's not a soul alive that doesn't agree with that. Every person who's the most pagan in the world will still agree that the body dies. But there's that hope where people feel they they just want to know that there's something after all of this, that I'm going to live in some kind of sanctimonious realm out there if they don't even admit who Jesus is. Some, as we go on through the list here, never even give Jesus a second thought, thinking him more to be a myth or some kind of legend that's been conjured up in the minds of people. Uh, And then there are some who are on the opposite side of the fence who are so greatly offended at him that they have waged wars over the years and wonder how how people could ever think to follow such a one as this man and profess him to be God or support him in any way. Well, the reality is, and I think we see this from what we just read in Matthew's Gospel, is that Jesus understood very well the perception that people had about him. And so in this section, this is why it's so foundational, he gives to us four things that I think are critical. One, he tells us who he is. Secondly, he tells us what he came to do. Thirdly, he, came, he tells us what he came, who he came for. And then lastly, he tells us who he's going to leave behind. Okay, and we're going to cover all of those even right now. Let's start with who he is. Okay, who is Jesus? Well, we don't have to go back very far. If you've been with us in our study of Matthew, you see this very clearly. At least I hope you do, because we've been pounding it. And, and no more than Matthew has, no more than the Holy Spirit has. But in Matthew's Gospel, just going back a few chapters, you ask the question, who is he? Well, the answer would be in question form, which would be, who can create a genealogy through both mother and father so perfectly that he would be along the lines of the Messiah, and in fact be the Messiah other than the Messiah himself? Who could manipulate such a thing unless it be God? Who can be born of a woman who's never known a man unless he be God? Who can orchestrate into the minds of men to follow a star, to bring gifts from the east, these wise men that traveled such great distances that we know really very little about, to bring such costly Gifts as they did to a child that would be in a, uh, a manger, in a barn, if you will, other than it be God himself. Who could preserve for himself from certain death or preserve himself from certain death from the edict of a king or of a ruler or of an overseer like Herod and save his life unless he be God and Who could conjure up such a beautiful scene as the Holy Spirit descending, if you will, in the form of a dove on Jesus and the crowd around him hearing, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Who could that be other than God himself to do such a thing? Who is it that could live for 40 days and 40 nights on the top of a mountain being tempted without food, without water, and by Satan himself trying to distract him from who he really is and be able to survive all of that and still progress in who he is other than being God who he is? Who is it that could could just with a word call people to leave everything in life, literally just at a call, and have them follow him unless he be God in some way? Who could teach and preach God's word with such authority that the people would want to follow and know more? I mean, many preachers have come and gone that people could care less about. 
Maybe they do a great job at what they say and how they proclaim it, but people very seldom will follow one like Jesus. Well, that would stand to reason if he be God, right? For that matter, who could heal a leper of his disease with a spoken word? Who could heal a servant with a spoken word? Who could heal a sick woman, mother-in-law, with just a word? Or calm a fierce storm on a sea with just a word? Or cast out demons from someone, hundreds of demons, if not more? Or heal a paralyzed man with just a word, unless he be God? And so the question, in my mind at least, is very easily answered, is that Jesus has come to prove himself to be God. He is literally manifesting himself, according to what we're reading in Matthew and through the other gospel writers, the one who professes to be the Messiah is truly God himself come in the flesh. Now secondly, the question then becomes, and this is our second of our four parts, is that what did he come to do? Well, in these verses, Jesus very clearly makes his statement about what he came to do. In verse 13b, look at the second part of it. He says, I came to call sinners to repentance. If you want to know what Jesus came to the earth for and why he did all that he did, it's answered right there in that verse. He came to call sinners to repentance, to turn away from their sin and to begin walking with him. And to give anybody the opportunity who will, no matter who they are, where they come from, or what their life has been like, like the option and the opportunity to join him in his eternal kingdom one day after they die. And again, we're all going to die, right? In fact, John 3.16, you know the verse very well. For God so what? Loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son so that believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 is very powerful as well. A lot of times we leave it out, but we really shouldn't. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to save the world. He came to save sinners particularly. And John later in 1 John 5 will clarify that we don't have to just guess about our salvation. We can know. In fact, he says that verbatim. These things I have written to you that you may believe in his name, of the Son of God, so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Our God came to the earth to prove himself to be God and give to us the assurance in our hearts without equivocation that he is God and we can know him for who he is and we will live with him forever and eternity. That's good stuff. That's good stuff in anybody's book. So the question this morning is, is that if you're not 100% certain, 100% certain, without any question in your mind that you will go to heaven when you die, today is the day where God wants you to make that certain. That's why he came. That's why he came. So I hope you'll take it as seriously as the Lord is when he gives this message to the Pharisees. Now, who did he come for? Well, he's already answered that question. Uh, We want to spend most of our time on this one because this is where we get the most clarity of what Jesus does in this particular situation. And as you know, we're doing just that. We're taking the situations as they come so we can dissect his life as clearly as we possibly can. In this case, Jesus has already called Simon. You remember him? He's Peter, also known as. 
His brother is Andrew, and that all was in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, they were fishermen. Right after that, in verse 21, he calls James and his brother John, who are sons of Zebedee, to be, fisher, uh, to be followers of him, all four being just that, fishermen, normal men, everyday people, people who were just making the economy go along, living their lives just like you and I do, yet sinful. And they knew it. Because they knew that all people are sinful. God's word had clearly articulated that to them. We would probably rank them on a certain scale because we typically rank things on all kinds of scales. We all have different scales that we rank things on. And we would say, okay, they're fishermen. Those aren't such bad guys. Well, there's a guy coming up now that we're reading about this morning that is quite different from the fishermen. And you're going to begin to understand why Some of the disciples had a tough time with him, at least according to what we see in the Chosen series. Now, those of you who are watching that, you'll be very well aware with Matthew, or who Matthew is right now. In fact, I would say you probably have gained some great sensitivity to Matthew at this point. You're kind of feeling your hearts being pulled towards him a little bit, and even feeling sorry for him because of how he is being portrayed, and specifically how he's being treated You know that he is being portrayed as somebody who's a little different or seems to be a little different, right? You've seen that. Brilliant, but different. Having the ability that the other disciples don't have, even making that an irritation for them. It was interesting to me, too, even just last night, and I've been aware of this as I just listened to things online and through television and people talking, but it was particularly interesting to me last night as I was knowing this section was coming up and Debbie was listening to something online about Uh, the characters on the Chosen series. And there was one young lady who was talking about the great blessing that it's been. And I couldn't help but hear her conversation about Matthew and what she was saying, which was really along the lines of what I was just saying here, is that she felt such a warmth for Matthew and such a, a sorrowfulness for Matthew and how he was being treated so harshly by the disciples. And and of course, knowing the story, there's more to it than that. And that's the part, though, that we've got to look at. Because we really have to see what God has done in the life of this individual to help us understand what God is capable of doing in the life of every individual. And so as people are more and more sensitive to Matthew, it's not uncommon for that to happen. But there is some good reasons why Matthew is being treated by the disciples the way he is. It's not that they're just being mean to him or he's the new guy on the block and he's not a fisherman like they are. There's other reasons why they're treating him that way. It's important that we understand that as much as we're all loving the Chosen series, we just want to realize that there are some things that are television. There are a lot of things that are read between the lines, and that's okay. I haven't found things in there that are particularly disconcerning to me. Um, But some things are not what Scripture tells us, or at least doesn't fulfill fully what Scripture tells us, and that's what we got to look at. In other words, there's a lot of truth about what you're sensing and you're feeling from what's being written there about Matthew, maybe he was on the, as Dallas Jenkins says, on the autistic scale. I mean, that's how he's being portrayed. Maybe he did show some signs or have Asperger's syndrome, which is purposeful on the part of the writers there in the story. What we don't know is that out of reality. That's an assumption. So we don't know all of those things. But what we do know, without problem, is that Matthew was not the greatest of people to his Hebrew family. And I'm talking about the nation as a whole. 
specifically to those people. And here's why. Matthew says of himself that he was a tax collector. Now, to you and me, we read that and we say, that's no big deal. i got friends of mine that work for the IRS. I've got friends of mine that work for H&R Block or all the other local tax shops. And so that's not such a terrible thing. I mean, there's a lot of good people that do that kind of work, who have families, work hard for their living, especially at tax time, as hard as that is. I don't like paying taxes myself, but everybody has to have a job. So what's the big deal? Well, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not good people. They were, in fact, hated by the people because they had forsaken their heritage as Jewish people. They had, with their own volition or by their own volition, willingly given themselves up in service to Rome. And by the very nature of the job, they were not only serving Rome, but they were, as I said, doing it volitionally. This wasn't something that was pushed on them meaning they had a willful following in their heart towards Rome because of what Rome was doing for them. It was kind of like the every man for himself kind of idea. And Matthew happened to be one of those guys who took advantage of something that Rome promoted to the Hebrew people, kind of like they would promote to the centurion, as we saw earlier, that was a part of the region. Rome was very good at reaching into the culture of the people and pulling people out to use against the culture. Now, Rome wanted peace. They developed the Pax Romana, which was years of peace, and they pushed for peace, and they held peace as long as you went with Rome. And one of the ways they did that, again, was what I just said, is that they would pull people out of the culture and they would use them for their own purposes. So Matthew was a tax collector who was a part of the community. He was a person who lived in the Jewish area of Capernaum, whose sole job was to get taxes from people. That's what Rome hired him to do, which was great for the tax collector. It worked out really well for them because they were legally free by Rome to get the taxes any way they wanted to. Rome pretty much gave them an open door. And also, however much tax they wanted, as long as Rome was satisfied with their part, which usually came in some form of extortion or some kind of corruption. And that was because Rome, again, didn't care how they got the money, as long as they got the money, and as long as it was the full amount that Rome was requiring of the people. And so it was left up to the tax collector to decide out of his own ingenuity how he was going to do that. So the tax collector often charged the common tax of the Roman government that was required, but added to it whatever they wanted to add above what Rome required. Now imagine going to your tax collector today and having that issue. Some of you might be saying, yeah, that does happen. Well, we don't know that for sure, but just imagine living in this society. And so there would be huge gains potentially for the person who was collecting taxes in Rome against their own people. And so again, it was very good for the tax collector as far as money and power went. Now, part of this issue is if you want to just think of how it worked, it was kind of like Rome would say, hey, Matthew, for example, we're going to give you a tax franchise. And that's literally what they called it. You will be a franchise owner. We'll do this for you. You can have this amount of money over and above whatever we ask of you, but you just make sure you get the tax and you'll be happy, we'll be happy, right? And so again, this was a good deal. It would be like owning an H&R Block or something like that, if you just kind of get that in your mind. The problem was, again, they were doing this against their own people. 
They were traitors among their own people, which was something God specifically said for them not to do. Not the traitor part, that's obvious. But God specifically said through the law of Moses and even Leviticus, you're not to do this tax thing against your own people. Notice in Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Notice the key phrase, your own people there, basically. Interest on money, on food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but you, to your countrymen, you shall not charge interest. In other words, if you're going to live in the community, you treat the community like you'd want to be treated. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter and possess. So that was violation from Deuteronomy. Well, God would repeat that later in Leviticus, Leviticus 25 of a sense. In the case of a countryman of yours who becomes poor and has means with regard to you and his means with regard to you falter. In other words, he owes you something back. Then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God, that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. God is again promoting his own law, which is love God and love your neighbor. Don't treat them in an ill-gotten way. And so as a tax collector, Matthew was not only hurting his own people, but he was violating the very law of God as a Hebrew person himself, making it doubly bad. Now, on top of all of that, there are other things such as the rich who were among the Hebrews themselves would often bribe the tax collectors as that was a very common thing by saying such thing as, I'll give you, Matthew, more money if you just show on your records for Rome that I've paid the actual amount that I'm due. But you just take this for yourself. Don't give it to Rome, but make Rome think you've given it to them by putting it on the books. Now, Matthew could say, oh, great, I've got the money. That's a lot of extra money. But I also have a problem, which is I've got to satisfy Rome. I still have to come up with the tally. And so what he would do is he would take the common guy who was poor and he would charge them an exorbitant amount of money to make up for the deficit that he was having. And so there was a lot of corruption, a lot of bad deals going on. And just so you know about what the taxation was... There were two types of tax collectors, and there's names specifically for these guys. There were actual titles for these people. But just suffice it to say, one was a general tax collector, and that would be kind of what you think, a person who collects taxes on land and property, on income, and a thing called a poll tax. Was like a, that was like a registration tax. It was literally a counting of the heads. And so depending on how many people you had in your family, you would pay a tax on that or or in your relationship to others, kind of like what we do today. It was not uncommon. The land tax was typically about a tenth of their grain income. And then there was a fifth of a tax on the fruit and the wine, which amounted to about a 1% earnings or having to give in tax, uh, depending on the amount of the poll tax. And that could vary from person to person. And so when people would sit down with their uh, local tax collector and say, let's do our taxes together, and the tax collector would say, well, you owe this, 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 and, and this. And you're like, okay, you can stop there. Right? We don't want to go any further. Now, the other tax collector was a collector who would collect on such things as import tax. Uh, there was that. Uh, there was a toll tax. For example, like in Matthew's case, or excuse me, Peter's case, and the other guy's case, uh, there would be a tax on 
the boat that was docked in a certain place. So obviously you couldn't bring your boat home with you. So you had to pay somebody to watch your boat. But then there would be a tax from Rome on top of that. There was a tax on business licenses. There was a tax on basically any kind of article that they would use for clothing or any kind of activity that the person had, such as the person's boat itself would be taxed. The fish that he caught would be taxed. The dock where he unloaded the fish would be taxed. He would have to pay all of this kind of stuff. If a person were not a fisherman, but they were just a traveler or a businessman, then the donkey would be taxed, kind of like a person who has a truck or something like that. His slaves and servants would be taxed. All of his goods would be taxed. And it even went so far as... If there were some private transaction between you and me, if we were the people, the tax collector had the right to open the mail to make sure there was no business going on. And if there were so, he could tax that. And so it was just a scandalous kind of thing of taxation. Now, among the general tax collectors, the one would be the guy who would say, you know what? I don't want to be treated so ill by the Hebrew people that I live with, so I'm going to hire somebody else, and they can collect the taxes, and I'll reap the profits from it, kind of become a businessman and have his own employees. But then there was the second guy who had his own little tax booth that would be somewhere around the corner of the market or in the city square there where people would have to pass in reminder that, hey, you owe your taxes. That was Matthew. And that's where Jesus finds Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth when he calls him. Now that gives us a little bit of a background on who Matthew is and the baggage, quite honestly, that was in his life. Now, heaping the pile up even more, not just money, but just in emotion and feeling, think about this. On top of that, the Jews themselves believed only in one God. The Romans did not. They believed in many gods. And so the Jews knew that their gods weren't the real God. There was only one God, right? Deuteronomy 6.4. So when they were forced to give taxes to these pagan deities, it made them feel like they were violating the holiness of God on top of it all. So not only were they being extorted by the tax collectors who were their own people, but they were also giving to gods that they knew were not gods and causing them to feel violated within themselves. And so you had money going out and you had sinfulness coming in and it was just spreading and being rampant among the people. So to get back at the tax collectors, the, ta- the people would say, okay, you're not going to be allowed in the synagogues. See that in the chosen, right? Matthew says that. You're not allowed to give any kind of testimony in a Jewish court of law. That was an important deal for people. Or to have basically any social contact with your fellow Hebrew people. You're shunned from the community, excommunicated, if you will, from the community. You'll live your life basically as a Roman. Don't call yourself a Jew. But they couldn't deny the fact that they were. You remember in the Chosen series how they did really a marvelous job when Matthew went to see his mother. Remember that? And his mother barely opens the door. And when she sees him, she's so surprised. And she says, I don't know if you caught this or not, but she says, Oh, your father, I can't tell him you were here or something like that. Well, the reason is because of all of this. This is all the background story behind what Matthew is facing. 
as he wants to go see his mom, according to the story that's not in the text of Scripture. But you can imagine how that would begin to weigh on the heart of any individual, especially a person who had been brought up under the Hebrew law. So the people then would turn that back on them and say, you're no more valuable than a pig. And a pig, you know, was the most worthless and unclean animal that there was. You are a despicable creature, just a traitor to Israel. So Matthew wasn't such a great guy. Matthew had a reputation. And so there's some justification in the heart of the people who are treating him that the way that they are, at least portrayed in the story. And I think the writers of The Chosen have brought that out pretty well. But we don't know that unless we study the background. So, you know, Matthew's living his life on his own. He's not invited to parties. He can't go be with family because... He's the person that he is. Now, also because the person he is, it had to have hurt him. And this is what I was alluding to just a moment ago. I can imagine just on a human perspective that there weren't times where he felt the weight of this. That he felt the the consternation and the, the, the pushing away. And, you know, again, as being a Jewish boy, he would have learned the Torah, the first five books. He would have known the love of God. For his people. He would have known of the calling that God placed on Abraham's heart and given to him the chosen nation. And he was a part of all of that. He would have had to have gone through Hebrew school. So there must have been some kind of deep conviction occurring in the background of his life as a traitor to his people and even to God. And so let's fast forward now into the text as Matthew then hears of Jesus coming to Capernaum. Knowing his own background, but seeing Jesus do what he's doing, and at least, if nothing else, hearing the stories, because word travels fast, right? He would have seen uh, who this Jesus is, and so can you imagine the moment now? We don't know the crescendo that's building in Matthew's heart, but we can only imagine as Jesus comes by the booth and says, Matthew, follow me. That would have been life-altering. Nobody wanted to talk to Matthew. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And I just don't think it took much for him to leave everything and follow, which is exactly what Luke records for us. Matthew doesn't say it this way, but Luke literally says he left everything. I don't know what that means. Maybe they portrayed it correctly in the story of the chosen, that he had to do a couple things to get some things right. I don't know, but the text just simply says he left everything. It was such a radical change in his life, and it must have been a beautiful moment. You kind of feel, that's what we're feeling, right, as we watch this. As our emotions are drawn into this character. But what we miss is the hatred for this man, because if you're a Hebrew and you're getting this from him, you're going to be right there with the other guys. And you're also going to be saying, what right does this guy have to be here? Well, let's just go into a kind of a different thought here for just a second. Have you ever noticed that when a person is first called by God, everything becomes about God? I mean, everything just becomes about the Lord. Because their heart has been so radically touched. They just can't help themselves. Now, up to this point, all five men now, because we got Matthew now, have left everything and followed Jesus. You and I look at that and we're going, wow, that's a pretty radical thing. To leave your business, to leave your family, to leave... 
Why would they do that? You say, well, that's easy. It's because they're in the presence of the Lord and he's called them. Yeah, that's true. But he's done the same thing for us. It's the same God. It's the same Lord. This is just the story of what he did when he was on the earth. But he called them and these men had such a radical change in their heart because I believe they saw themselves for who they really were and couldn't help but go with Jesus. And the reality is none of them had anything to offer him, right? And that's being portrayed very well in the story as you're watching it. They were just everyday people living ordinary lives like the fishermen versus Matthew, some better than others as far as culture would be concerned, but nothing really making them stand out except one common theme. They were all sinners and they knew it. God had convinced them, their own hearts had convinced them, the working of the Holy Spirit in the background of their mind had convinced them there was something wrong with their heart that needed to be fixed. So what I'm really saying here is that it is only the people who embrace that truth that are the people who truly become followers of Christ. It's only the people who see themselves as having nothing and sinful at the core who fully embrace Jesus and his message. In fact, Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much are the ones who love much. Jesus is really kind of laying down an interesting statement there when he says, if you want to picture some measurement scale, here's how it works. The people who know that they are the most despicable and who have the least to offer God and anybody else are the ones who rejoice the loudest and the greatest when God calls them. Why? Because they know how invaluable they are. And now they've been called by the one who has no reason other than by his own choosing to call them. And so they want to be with him. They can't stop being with him. It's like the prostitute who came to Jesus. It's such a beautiful scene. As I thought about this, I thought about this woman. We weren't there, but Luke gives us this picture of this this scene. Beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner." Now skip with me down to verse 14, excuse me, verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. She is a perfect example of what we're talking about. She loved the Lord so much, not because of her own value, but because of her own invalue. 
because she saw how desperate she was for healing. She knew, nobody had to tell her she was a sinner. She got that. That wasn't a big flag that needed to go up. There was no plane that needed to pull a streaming banner behind it saying that you're a sinner. No, she understood that. And when Jesus came into her life in the roundabout way that we're told about here, she was going to make good use of his time. And she came and she showed the openness of her heart to him according to what he had done for her. And so will every person who sees their soul the same way. Listen, the person who knows that they're a sinner doesn't have to be told that. You just know. You know that when you measure your life against the holiness of God, you don't measure up. And that qualifies you as a sinner. And for those of you who have seen yourself as a sinner in comparison to the holiness of God, can't help but sit at the feet of Jesus. You just can't get enough of him. You want to be with Jesus. This was what was happening to the disciples. That's what was happening to Matthew. He was being so changed in his heart, his heart was overflowing now in joy because somebody would finally pay attention to him and meet him in his deepest need, which was this aloneness. Maybe you can identify with Matthew. Maybe you're thinking, I'm just living my life like kind of he did. I mean, I'm not a tax collector, but I basically do whatever I need to do to make things right for me and my family. I do what seems to make sense, even if people don't like it. Pretty much an innocent thing. I mean, everybody lives like that. But now you see, as you're growing closer to God and He's opening up your heart more, you're beginning to see your selfishness. You're beginning to see your waywardness, that you put yourself first above others, and you're beginning to see sin growing in you and Jesus is showing you in the midst of all of that and this is what's drawing you to him that in the midst of your sinfulness he loves you you keep shouting back at him Lord no I'm not worthy like Peter when he got on his feet on his face at the side of the fishing boat and said go away from me I'm an unclean man Right? I'm a sinful man. You're saying that to him, but Jesus is constantly bending over to you, saying, I know, I know, I know, but I love you, and I've come to rescue you. I came to save sinners. That's why I'm here. And so our response simply has to be, Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me. And he will, because that's what he came to do. So let me ask you, if Jesus were to look into your eyes and say to you, follow me, would you drop everything and follow him? You see, people who do that are not just people who he wrote about in the book, but they're real life people who still do that today. People who know that God is the only one who can save them. You remember the demoniac? We'll use a picture from the scripture here. You remember what happened when Jesus healed him? Matthew doesn't say this. But Luke does. Actually, Mark says this. Very quickly there, at the latter end of it, after Jesus heals the demoniac, he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to get in the boat with him. And you're just so filled with compassion for this man because God has cast out the demons of his life. And he doesn't just turn away and say, oh, thanks, see you next week. He said, no, can I go with you? Can I stay with you? But Jesus says, no, you go back and you tell everybody what I've done for you. 
You become my messenger. That really answers the question in a lot of ways as to why God doesn't just immediately take us to heaven when we get saved. You you and I would say, oh Lord, I don't want to stay here in this earth anymore. Can I just go with you right now? And God would be saying to us, no, your time is in my hand. That's settled. But I want you to go and I want you to be my messenger. Go tell everybody what I've done for you. Go tell them. That's why he leaves us here. You remember the woman at the well? John 4? You can't forget that scene in The Chosen, right? The woman who had been married to five husbands and Jesus comes along and he tells her all about it. Here's the context, of the, the latter part of it in verse 28. So the woman left her water pot. I mean, she just dropped it. Went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? You know, she was so overjoyed by the fact that Jesus had come as the Messiah and revealed himself to her and changed her life so much that she wanted to tell everybody. She just couldn't help it. And I have to believe that was Matthew. Because not only did he follow Jesus, but he began to tell everybody too. Look at verse 10. And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, well, what house is that? Well, Luke tells us. Matthew doesn't tell us that. I think out of a humility from his own heart. But Luke tells us, and Levi, that's another name for Matthew, gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. I mean, Matthew's so excited about this change in his life, he throws a party. I mean, how many of you, when you got saved, called all your friends and said, we're going to have a party, man. You got to come listen to this. That was Matthew. You know why? Because God changed him. And he knew it. And he wanted everybody to know about it. So he calls all the people that only he knows, because everybody else has shunned him, which are other tax collectors. Probably thinking they can work some deal in the background, right? Who knows what they're thinking. But Matthew says, at least I got a connection with these lame brains, so I'll get them to come, and they'll have to hear it because I'm not going to let them leave until I tell them. And not only that, but Matthew records here that he also calls sinners. Who are those? Well, you'd say, well, that's everybody. Well, not in the Jewish tradition. In the Hebrew tradition, that would be people who rejected the Mosaic law, people who were those who were the murderers, the prostitutes, the big bad things, right? The drunkards, the robbers, all those people who walked another way of life. You think to yourself, man, what a crowd. Some of you might be saying, yeah, I've been to some of those parties. Hopefully in your earlier days. Hopefully you're not going back to those parties, at least in the sense that they were coming to parties. But let's think about it from a different angle. Maybe this is you. Maybe you're the one that doesn't have any other friends like Matthew. Maybe there's nobody who really wants to spend time with you or to make you feel like you have some kind of value. You don't have any of the godly friends like other people have. Or the ones who profess to be godly at least. Maybe you're the one who's been rejected because of how your life has been or what you've done. If you pay attention, folks, to the culture today, you're going to hear this kind of message. Television is picking up on it rampantly. You listen to the gay community, you listen to some of the other community people, and they are highlighting how the church is rejecting them. And so there's a real message in all of this if we listen carefully because our Jesus is different 
right? Aren't you thankful that the Lord came to your party when you were a sinner? I mean, aren't you glad that when nobody else would come, Jesus says, I'll come. I'll be there. I'll come to whatever you need me to come to. And you say, but Lord, I've messed up my life so badly. I just, you know, it's just a, it's just a wreck. I don't have any hope from anybody else. Everybody's giving me the thumbs down and it doesn't look like anything's going to ever work. You know what Jesus says? I'll come. I'll be there. You can count me in. Put my name on the guest list. It's not going to change. I'll be there. And some of you folks are too young to remember this guy, but most of you at least have heard the name Alice Cooper. He was a pretty wicked dude. You remember his stage show, biting the heads off of bats, doing all kinds of disgusting things on stage. Demonic. I mean, demonic. Guillotines and for night after night after night, he would pretend to hang himself and just gross stuff. Well, did you know he grew up as a preacher's son? Listen to his testimony. Having grown up with a father who was a preacher, Cooper has always had religion in his life, but it wasn't until he quit drinking and drugging in the 80s that he dedicated his life to Christ, partly at the urging of his wife, Cheryl. Cheryl had gone, she had gone to Chicago and said, I can't watch this. Alice recalled about the moment when he accepted Jesus into his life, but the cocaine was speaking a lot louder than her. Finally, I looked in the mirror and it looked like my makeup, but it was blood coming down from my eyes, I think. I might have been hallucinating, I don't know. I flushed the rock down the toilet. I woke up and I called her and I said, it's done. And she goes, yeah, right, you have to prove it. One of the deals were we were going to start going to church. I knew who Jesus Christ was and I was denying him. I knew that there had, to be either, there had to either come a point where I either accepted Christ and started living that life, or if I died in this, I was in a lot of trouble. And that's what really motivated me. I just got to a point of saying, I'm tired of this life, and I know that this is right when the Lord opens your eyes and you suddenly realize who you are and who He is. Praise the Lord. And there are many other people just like the Alice Coopers of the world. And we could, you probably have a list of people even now that you're hearing about that I may not even know of. But Jesus is in the business of changing sinful hearts. That's what he said he came to do. And notice, not only were the riffraff at dinner, but Matthew quickly says the disciples were there too. And this is very interesting because, and I think purposeful on the Lord's part, he was teaching the boys a little lesson here because the disciples needed to learn firsthand what it means to love people who are really hard to love, right? And that's, a, that's the message for us as well. There's a lot of little messages in all of this because it's very easy for you and me to come to church and love each other. It's very easy to sit in our Bible studies and to sit in the things that we do and enjoy one another's fellowship and we should always do that. I'm not negating that at all. This is what we were just dedicating Little Brooklyn over so that she will live a life just like that. But the reality is the truth is not, the church has, has missed this message in a lot of ways over the years. That Jesus came to rescue us, but we are the ones who are to say to the world, look, I was just like you. This was my life. I was a mess. And I couldn't handle it. 
And Jesus opened his arms to me and loved me in the midst of my mess and saved my soul. That's the message of the church, right? But the church has missed that. We've taken the message and we've internalized it so much that we come inside of our four walls a lot of times and we forget about the world out there that needs to hear the message. He saved us to be the proclaimers of the message. Otherwise, he would have taken us home. He's using us for his purpose. He wants us to help people to realize that even though they are worthless in the eyes of society and even among their friends, they have great and eternal intrinsic value to the Lord. He created them. He wants to save them. He wants them to be in heaven with him. That is a powerful truth. We need to remember that Jesus wants the most unworthy souls. The people that we often turn away from. He calls the most ungodly people. And he does a great job at changing them. He shows them their unholiness and their ugliness. Exposes all of that to them. And then he shows them his deep beauty, his love and his forgiveness. And his willingness to change them if they would just open their hearts in return. And we don't know anything about these other tax collectors and the sinners and what they thought about Jesus, as I said earlier. But what we do know is that they were at least in the presence of God for a short time. So maybe we're going to see them in heaven. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great to come up to some of these people and they'll say, Yeah, you remember that story you read about in the Bible? I was there. I was one of them. But even beyond that, I think the main point is is that even though we are to be pure in our lives, we're to be willing to associate with sinners. Now hear me carefully. I didn't say become a sinner. You're already that. I'm saying associate with sinners. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 14. How would they then call on him in whom they've not believed? But listen to the progression of his thought. How will they believe in him and who they've not heard? And how are they going to hear without a preacher? And you say, praise the Lord. That's why we pay you. You're the preacher. Go get them. Sick them, boy. Sick them. No. I mean, that is true. But you're the preacher too. The word is just messenger, deliverer, proclaimer. Right? How are they going to hear if you don't go proclaim it? Imagine if all the disciples would have said to Jesus, Wow, this is awesome, Jesus. So cool. But we're not going to do that. I mean, no. I mean, that, no. I mean, we don't want to be with those folks. Jesus says, You're missing the point. That's who I came for. I didn't come to call the righteous. So be careful, lest you think yourself to be the righteous ones. And you might find yourself on the wrong side of eternity. Scary thought. Matthew 22, 9, go to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Go tell them. You say, they don't want to listen to me. That's not your business. Your business is to give the message. Let God do the changing of the heart. That's his job. 
Okay, so that's who's going to be there. That's who he came from. Well, who's going to be left behind? You probably already figured this out, but let's just look at this, this, this group of people. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not for the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The people, obviously, that the Lord is going to leave behind are those who I just said, the people who will not surrender themselves in humility to his lordship. Pharisees thought they had heaven in the bag. They thought they had the golden ticket because they had the bloodline of Abraham. That was all they needed. Some people say, well, I was raised in a Christian family. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And that's all they think they need. Well, James says even the devil believes and trembles, right? It's not enough just to have a head knowledge. It's a heart knowledge that's the critical part. It has to move from the head to the heart. But the problem that the Pharisees had, the religious church, if you will, missed the point of Jesus' whole coming, and so he had to set them straight. He's going to say to them, guys, listen, you should know this. You're the spiritual doctors. You're the ones who are given the message, but you spend all your time with the healthy people. You spend all your time with people who don't need this message. But the very people who are open to talking about the struggles of their life and even with God and me or those who are the, considered the crowd that you want to talk about or the church people are the ones who are likeliest to receive Christ the quickest. In other words, the people that I really come for are the people that you don't put in the right category. Because they know they're lost. You only thought you were lost, but you've missed the point. And he uses scripture to make his point. Notice he says in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. That phrase, go and learn what this means, was a common statement from rabbis when they were teaching young men about the way of the law. And when they didn't get the meaning of the law, he would say, go and learn this, meaning spend some time thinking about this because you're missing the point. And so Jesus, as the master teacher, says to the Pharisees, go and learn what you should know. You're the teachers, but you don't understand this. And he's quoting from Hosea 6.6. You remember the story of Hosea? It's a beautiful picture of redemption. Hosea becomes really like a type of Christ. As he marries, God tells him to marry Gomer, the prostitute. And she goes out and lives her wayward life, but each time he goes back after her and even buys her out of the slave market at one point and brings her continually back into his home. This was his wife. And God is giving the message here, that's me, Hosea, I am you. I go after my people who are wayward and prostituting themselves in foreign and false gods all throughout history, and I search for them and I bring them back to me. And so he says to the religious leaders, listen, compassion from your heart is what I want. I don't care about your religiosity. That's not what's important. The problem was, again, they had the head knowledge, but they didn't have the heart knowledge. And that's Christians a lot of times. Most churches, I don't know what the number is, but I'm saying this from experience, most churches are filled with people who have a lot of head knowledge, but they don't have heart knowledge. I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm just telling the truth. It has to go from the head into the heart. And you know when you have heart knowledge, don't you? Because when somebody loves you or you love, are loved by, you love somebody else and they don't do exactly what you want, you feel it. 
You know what it means to be in love with somebody in your heart. God says, I want me to be in your heart, not just in your head. True belief is not just a mental thing. It's not just accepting something as true. It's accepting it as truth and bringing it down into the heart. Again, which is where most churches never see or why a lot of churches never see the great things of God. That's a tough statement, but that's reality. A lot of churches have great head knowledge, but they lose God in the midst of their knowledge. That was the Pharisees, and Jesus knew it. They missed God all the way through their thinking. And so he's coming back to set them straight. And we're just reading about that. But I think the message for us is, is that we have to be sensitive to what God is saying. First, it's got to go from our head to our hearts. And then we are to be compassionate people. I'm, I'm not saying go give in to the sinful life of people. I'm saying be the proclaimer of the message of truth so that they can have hearts that are open and God will rescue them. God uses us to deliver that message. Do you know that pastors have been fired from churches who do that? Now, some of you may not remember this, or you might. There was a church that we went to down in Norfolk a couple years ago on one of our youth missions trips. Um, and that whole heart of the pastor was to reach the community of Norfolk in their little location. It was a tough area, a drug area. One, at one time, the church was just a beautiful place that was filled with uh, all the ornate things of God, and it was just kind of like any other uh, upper-class uh, society or setting. Well, we learned later that next year that the pastor had been fired from the job because the church didn't want to reach those people. The church didn't like the fact that the carpets were getting dirty and the chairs were getting messed up and, and the, the, the riffraff were coming in. And so they fired him. But folks, listen. If we're going to apply that, how many churches would fire Jesus? I mean, really, how many churches would fire Jesus if he were their pastor? Because Jesus would be reaching people that most folks don't want to reach. That's why in the story of the chosen, Matthew keeps going, Jesus, are you sure about this guy? Excuse me, Peter keeps saying that about Matthew. He's like, I know who this guy is and he's not going to fit with us well. And Jesus says what, that wonderful statement? Get used to change, right? Get used to different. Again, that's all part of the storyline. We don't see that in the text, but I think it's pretty well lived out. Here's a quote. We're almost done. John MacArthur said this, The person who is cold towards other people proves he is also cold towards God, making that person more in need of God than the sinner who sees their sin and comes to God. So Jesus finishes his comment to the false teachers. Notice what he says. Here it is again. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. That's why I came. So who's going to be left behind? All those people who think they're righteous, but they're not. That's it. I mean, the people who think they're righteous, but they're not. It's only the people who know they have no righteousness about them that will be saved. Romans 3. Paul quoting from the Psalms here and other places, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. So who's going to be saved? Sinners. Sinners will be saved. People who know 
that they're sinners and only Jesus can help them. That's who's going to be in heaven. I've often pictured that in my head a lot of times, just wondering who are the faces going to be that are going to be in the kingdom. And I just have this feeling that it's going to be a lot of people that we would never suspect. Because the world has a very different way of measuring righteousness than the Spirit of God does. The question is, where will you be? Right? We pray it'll be in heaven. Father, we thank you for the clarity and the truth of your word that brings about conviction of our souls. Lord, it is so easy for us to find you, quote unquote, and to live our lives with you in the church in a holy manner, which is all right, it's all good, but to lose sight of who you really came for. Father, I pray that your spirit would always remind us every day that we had no redeeming value in ourselves, but it was only because of your compassion that you came for us. It was because of your willingness to rescue those whom you've chosen. And those people are the ones who acknowledge their worthlessness because they measure themselves against your holiness, not against man. And they fall on their face before you, literally and figuratively, worshiping you as God and creator because you have rescued them. Thank you for the lives of these men this far. We're going to see more. We're going to see so much more as Matthew has so much more to record. And we just can't wait to see how much more you're going to do in the lives of people as you elevate yourself and also humble yourself and reach to the depths of depravity to rescue those people who need you most. Lord, may that be our hearts. I pray today in Jesus' name.